Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine. We also head to Wimbledon, minutes before Ukrainian wildcard Alina Svitolina starts her semi-final match. We talk to foreign correspondent Colin Freeman about his recent reporting from Ukraine, and we welcome BBC correspondent and author Andrew Harding to discuss his new book, A Small Stubborn Town, on a crucial battle in the early weeks of the full-scale invasion. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 13th of July, one year and 139 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, tennis correspondent Simon Briggs, foreign correspondent Colin Freeman, and our guest is author and BBC correspondent Andrew Harding. Francis, can I start with you? What's the latest updates from Ukraine? Thanks, David. I'll come to the final twists and turns from the NATO summit in a moment, but we'll start with the massive strike on Kyiv overnight, the third day in a row. Ukraine said it shot down 20 Russian attack drones and two cruise missiles in the attack that killed one and wounded at least four in the capital. Vitaly Klitschko, the city's mayor, said firefighters discovered the body of one dead person, adding that two people had been taken to hospital after falling debris damaged a residential building. Kyiv's military administration said that a 19-year-old woman and a 23-year-old man had also been hospitalised with shrapnel wounds. And it's not clear if they're the same people that Vitaly Klitschko was referencing in his statement, but I think we can assume that they probably are. Explosions were heard across the capital last night, widely reported in the press and on Twitter. And debris from intercepted drones fell on four districts of the capital, we understand. And that's also come from the Ukraine's Ministry of Internal Affairs. Many are interpreting this as a signal from Moscow that it is committed to continue fighting this war, regardless of the commitments to Ukraine at Vilnius. As regular listeners will know, Russia do have past history timing larger strikes with important summits and meetings. 
But turning to the front lines, Ukraine continues to report progress near Bakhmut. Hannah Mela, Ukraine's deputy defence minister, said in that sector we attacked on the southern flank. There is an advance. Our defenders are digging in at their established positions. She said their forces had contained attempted Russian advances on towns to the north and west. In the south, she added they pressed on with offensive operations towards the Sea of Azov. In the past week, our defenders in the south have significantly undermined the enemy's attacking and defensive capabilities, she said. Now, turning to the Russian army, following the death of the general we reported yesterday, the head of the State Duma Defence Committee has said that Sergei Sorovkin, the missing deputy commander of Russia's military operations in Ukraine, who many believe has been fired due to his good relations with Prigozhin, is said to be currently resting and is not available for now, which is a rather curious way of putting it. Another general has also allegedly claimed he's been dismissed as a commander after telling the military leadership about the dire situation at the front, where he said Russian soldiers have been stabbed in the back by the failings of the top military brass. Major General Ivan Popov, who commanded the 58th Combined Arms Army, reportedly said in a voice message published by a Russian lawmaker that he had been dismissed. I'll quote from him. There was a tough situation with the senior bosses in which it was necessary either to keep quiet and be a coward or say it as it is. I had no right to lie in the name of you, in the name of my fallen comrades in arms. So I outlined all the problems which exist. The senior chiefs apparently sensed some kind of danger from me and quickly concocted an order from the defence minister in just one day and got rid of me. The Ukrainian army could not break through our ranks at the front But our senior chief hid us from the rear, viciously beheading the army at the most difficult and intense moment. A pretty extraordinary outburst, if true. We all know the historical potency of a stabbed in the back myth. Although what is different here is that this sense of betrayal feels contained to the armed forces and the Wagner group as opposed to the wider society at large. But speaking to Wagner, the Russian Ministry of Defence has announced the group has almost completely handed weapons and military equipment over to the MOD. It claims, and I emphasise that word, Wagner transferred 2,000 pieces of equipment and weapons, including T-90, T-80 and T-72 tanks, multiple launch rocket systems, anti-aircraft missile systems, howitzers, anti-tank guns, mortar shells, armoured tractors, personnel carriers, vehicles and small arms. Apparently, this material was transferred to rear areas where Russian repair and recovery units will maintain and prepare the equipment for use. The Institute of the Study of War, however, highlights that it has been greeted with scepticism from certain Russian bloggers and posits that the announcement is likely part of the Kremlin's wider narrative effort to portray itself as fully in control and the Wagner rebellion as a settled affair. So that's the military situation as of one o'clock London time. But most attention is focused on the implications of the NATO summit in Vilnius, which concluded yesterday. Wrapping up the meeting, President Biden said the West will not waver in its support for Ukraine, no matter how long the war takes. As he left the summit, the US president told reporters Mr Zelensky understood that whether or not he is in NATO now is not relevant. We will stand for liberty and freedom today, tomorrow and as long as it takes. After all this time, Putin still doubts our staying power. He is making a bad bet. Now, there are 
further significant military announcements at the summit. Perhaps the most important, a confirmation that the Netherlands will begin training Ukrainian pilots to use F-16 fighter jets. As such, Zelensky called the summit a success in a statement on Twitter last night, though there are pretty divergent interpretations of the summit depending on one's viewpoint. I think this has been best captured by Matthew Light. He's Associate Professor of Criminology and European Studies at the University of Toronto. He tweeted last night about a revealing conversation he had with two diplomats from Western European NATO countries who'd attended the summit that pointed to a gap in perceptions between the inner circle of NATO policymakers and outside observers regarding the summit's success. I'll quote from him. The two diplomats pointed to recent achievements, such as Sweden's now clear path to NATO accession, the NATO-Ukraine Council, new weapons shipments to Ukraine and rising defence spending in Europe as evidence that NATO has been reinvigorated and this summit was a success. They expressed puzzlement, if not frustration, that anyone would expect Ukraine to be admitted or given a clear timeline for a session at this summit, which they viewed as a non-starter in itself and overplayed vis-à-vis NATO's recent achievements and the other summit outcomes. To my question as to how the postponement of Ukraine's NATO accession would be viewed in Moscow, they responded that the war had been a disaster for Russia and listed all the well-known failures and setbacks Putin had experienced since February 2022. The exchange left me with a sense that these officials and close observers of the post-Soviet region or people from that region are inhabiting very different realities. In one reality, NATO is marching forward confidently, improving its militaries and their interoperability. In the other reality, the greatest challenge to NATO and to the democratic world is being met with indecision and hesitancy. And the missed opportunity of integrating Ukraine will embolden Russia and lead it to continue its efforts to subjugate Ukraine rather than abandon them. I think this is a very astute observation and one that goes some way to explain the furore yesterday that Kyiv should show more gratitude for its military support. Ben Wallace was not alone in saying that. It's something I've heard from others as well, including several American diplomats. This dissidence comes from two very different conceptions of this war. Those who believe that Ukraine is holding back the Russians, that were it not for them, Russia would have taken Ukraine and would then be turning its attention elsewhere, whether through military or political subversion. This idea that Russia is a threat to Europe and is essentially an imperialist power seeking to expand And those who really argue that it's just predominantly Ukraine's future that is at stake due to the shield of protection offered by those countries in NATO. Now, whether justly or unjustly, Zelensky was keen to emphasise his gratitude at the end of the summit yesterday. In his evening address, he said thank you 41 times and kudos to whoever counted that. But given the dissonance between those two interpretations I just described, I think we can expect this issue to rear its head again. It's a thorny one but an important one. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Now let's move away from politics and military news for a moment. Many Ukrainians and many people around the world have been following Alina Svitolina's extraordinary progress at Wimbledon, the tennis tournament held here in London. Her semi-final match is later today, so it's a pleasure to bring our tennis correspondent on, Simon Briggs. Simon, can you tell us a little bit about her tournament so far? Why has it been so extraordinary? Well, Alina has taken on a couple of seeds and she has outperformed all expectations, really. The most high-profile match would have been the one against Victoria Azarenka, a former world number one on Sunday, which had extra political charge because Azarenka is a Belarusian. 
and the crowd ended up booing Azarenka as she left the court um, after there was no handshake between the two players, uh, a, a response which Azarenka was very caustic about in the post-match press conference because it's uh, well known within the tennis world that there has been a suspension of handshakes when Ukrainian players are, are expected to go on court against players from either Russia or Belarusia. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean there's personal animosity between the players. It's simply the fact that Ukrainian players feel that if they were to make that gesture, they would be betraying the people at home who are undergoing bombardment and, and terror at the hands of the invaders. Thanks, Simon. Could you... I mean, the, the, the piece we'd really love to talk to you about a bit today before you go and cover more matches is the fact that you caught up with Sergei Stakhovsky, a former Ukrainian tennis player. Can you tell, him, tell, tell us about him and what, what he's doing at the moment? What did he tell you? Yes, well, Stakhovsky was a top player who famously beat Roger Federer at Wimbledon in 2013, but he joined the war effort in 2022 quite soon after playing the Australian Open. He was attached to a, a, a unit that was specialising in mortars. He's not been on the front line in the last couple of weeks. He's been training at an enclave near Kiev. But he is heading back on Monday uh, to, to, to get involved back at the front line, which was quite a, uh, a sort of freaky feeling to talk to a guy who is actually collaborating, as we speak, with Svitlina on developing a tournament for junior tennis players in Ukraine. Yet, he's also had to pack up his equipment and get ready to go back to the war. He, he told you that it's, it's quite difficult, the, the, the contrast between civilian life and being in the army. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? What did he struggle with? I think he, he struggles with the feeling of, of optimism in Kiev because he knows how difficult the counteroffensive is going to be. He feels that there is an expectation that the counteroffensive will sweep the Russian positions away. But he told me that when the Russians reached the Dnieper River, they simply began to build deep fortifications and, and defences. And he says that when you, when you go back to the front and you have to jump into the trenches with a rifle and you can be um, 150 metres away from Russian soldiers, it, it's a very risky business. And the level of the soldiers which potentially can be sustained in that situation. So for him... There's a sense of a certain amount of foreboding about how much can be delivered despite the best efforts of the Ukrainian military. There's one quote I think I'd like just 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 quickly read out. He said he said to you, we lost one generation of players to the pandemic because the kids stopped practicing and basically went online. Then we lost a second generation when a lot of Ukrainian players traveled out, out of the country as refugees with their mothers. The ones with more talent will stay naturalized in their new countries, which will do whatever they can to keep them. The budgets of these countries are usually far greater than Ukraine. What did you make of his vision of the future of Ukrainian tennis? Yes, it was a little bleak. I suppose it's not the priority for many people in the country right now. Um, having said that, Ukraine has had a terrifically strong presence, particularly on the women's side of, of tennis. And there's a lot of players in the top 100, as well as um, there were Stikovsky and Alexander Dolgopolov, his friend, who were, who were both leading players in the 2010s. So um, it does sound as if the, the physical uh, um, facilities have also undergone a, a heavy toll of that particularly you mentioned four tennis centers that have been basically destroyed by russian invaders so this is why he and Svitolina have been cooperating on creating a tournament that would give juniors in 
Ukraine a chance to start playing even as early as next month. And it's interesting that he's chosen Buka as, as the first place where the tournament will begin because Buka was where he went at the very beginning of his military service at a time when he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to face with a Russian soldier. And it was the trip to Buka which changed his mind after seeing the atrocities there made him feel that 100% he would be ready to kill on the front line if he had to. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That's Simon Briggs, our tennis correspondent at Wimbledon. Um, it's great to have Colin Freeman, foreign correspondent, back. Uh, Colin, you're back in London. It would be great to talk to you a little bit about some of the pieces you wrote for The Telegraph um, before you left Ukraine. Could we start with your visit to the Ukrainian field hospital near Bakhmut? Um, why did you decide to go there and what did you see? Yes, this was a field hospital up near the front lines of, uh, around Bakhmut. I'll start just by defining what we mean by front lines, really. There is what I suppose you would call your classic front line, which is right up the very, very sharp end of it, where you have Ukrainian soldiers, uh, or indeed Russian soldiers, in trenches, and they're pointing their weapons out towards the enemy, and literally the next thing you come to over no man's land is the enemy. And then you have what I suppose you might call the the rearward front lines, which is really all the territory stretching back from there, which is where we were. We were at a field hospital about five kilometres back from the the very forwardmost position of the front lines. Now, that may sound like like a fairly comfortable distance away. It is not. It means you are well within artillery range and so on. And um, really, you're you're actually in many ways towards the forward end of the front lines. The rearward end could be anything between 10 and 15 or even 20 kilometres away. I've been in all those positions in the last year and and been told we are in technically what counts as a front line. So the the idea of this particular hospital, it's a a field hospital, but it's very much a kind of forward, forward operating field hospital. So what happens if if a soldier is is injured on the front lines, his comrades will do their best to patch him up quickly, which usually means putting on a tourniquet to stop any serious bleeding and perhaps administering some pain relief. Then they will put him in a vehicle, ideally an armoured ambulance or some sort of armoured vehicle, and take him back to this field hospital about five kilometres back, where you have um, a group of two or three medics who will then do their best to provide a bit more expert assessment of of, of, of the casualties, injuries, stabilise his wounds, if needs be, provide life-saving treatment, resuscitation, that sort of thing on the spot. And depending on how, you know, how badly wounded he is, they will then either delay him for several hours trying to stabilise them or just send them straight off down the road to another field hospital about 40 minutes down the road where um, they can provide um, more expert treatment. And then in turn, they may be then sent to a field hospital, a hospital in a big city. Now, this, this field hospital I was at, it's not like what you might see in the movies with, you know, sort of a set of tents and a Red Cross sign up. These field hospitals are considered as much of a target as anything else. They are vulnerable to Russian artillery. So they don't carry any red crosses or anything like that. There's no medical insignia on either the field hospital or any of the vehicles that service it whatsoever. Instead, the medics operate out of um, a cellar, 
under a house uh, in a village that's been pretty heavily shelled. They are relatively safe while operating out of this, this bunker. Every so often, an ambulance will pull up this and, and deliver a patient. They will then look at them, give them a 10-minute going over and ideally stabilise them before sending them further down the field. But to do that, they don't even do that out in the open. They take them to another separate area, which is really just a, a, a garage in a, in a building nearby with some stretchers and some basic medical equipment where they will look at the, the patient. It's all done very, very quickly. Sometimes they will actually just pile into the ambulance that has delivered the patient, not even bother taking them out, drive the ambulance into a little kind of recess where it's not so visible to artillery and just treat them very quickly there. So we were there for, I think, about 16 hours. It did feel like you were fairly close to the front lines. There was artillery coming in every so often, a few times, but nothing particularly serious. Stuff landing maybe half a kilometre away or something, which is is pretty much par for the course around there. Nobody flinched at all. Um, uh, And, of course, you're underground, so you are relatively safe from the shrapnel bursts and so on. In those 16 hours, they had three casualties, Two of them are all from artillery uh, wounds, mainly very serious uh, injuries to the legs and with, with, with lacerations causing very serious bleeding. Two of those casualties were patched up, although they came in unconscious. They were then sent off further down uh, the road for further treatment. The, uh, the feeling was that they would both pull through. One of them, uh, unfortunately, was, was dead on arrival. The medics went through the motions of trying to resuscitate him, but it was pretty clear that he was he was not going to pull through. The this was so this was in 16 hours, so three casualties. I think the the take home that appeared to me was that they said this was a fairly quiet or routine day, that neither side was actually trying to make any big push at the time, and that essentially this was a day when neither side was trying to be honest thank you very much you mentioned there were three three casualties when you were there did they give a sense of what is that a quiet day particularly busy day what how were they with you what what how did they talk about the job they had to do yeah they said on some days they can have a hundred people I, I don't think those days are necessarily very common and i don't think that figure was a, a specific figure of a hundred but clearly it can be a great deal busier than that yes was there anything that you saw there that actually sort of surprised you that was a bit, a bit different to how you expected? Not really. The, the medics are very matter-of-fact about what they do. When one of the soldiers came in dead, there was no great surprise about it. They didn't say anything. They put, zipped him into a black body bag and stored his body in a, in a, in a separate building. And that was that. Um, I asked them how they felt about, um, you know, dealing with so many of their own generation. These were young guys, the medics, how it felt to be zipping your peers up into a body bag on on such a regular basis. And they just said, well, you know, this is war. That's something to think about maybe when it's all over. In the meantime, you take solace in those whom you can save and whom you can do something for. So I think that is very much the way that um, they are taught to to deal with this. And indeed, their own commander said much the same thing. He said, if, 
if if you start letting this work get to you, if you start letting it mess with your head, you, you're going to start having problems. So, you know, every now and again, you need to get out and get away and just not think about it. You didn't come up with any fancier psychological solutions than that. But um, cl- clearly being in the position that they are in, it, it's you, you are seeing very much the, the sharp end of the war. I should also point out that I mentioned that the the medical units are a target for the Russian artillery and so on, and that they don't carry their red crosses. My understanding, because uh, I, I, I think, I dare say a lot of listeners will be thinking, well, do the Ukrainians do this the other way around? Because this is clearly a breach of the of you know the, the the normal conventions of war my understanding from speaking to some ukrainian soldiers and reading around is that russians are considered fair game in certain circumstances as well i don't know whether they shell russian ambulances but i have seen ukrainian soldiers showing me footage of them dropping bombs via drones on Russian soldiers during Russia while watching what are clearly Russian medical evacuations. I say that just in the interests of balance. I don't intend it to be a comment that is addressed at Ukrainian official policy on this. I'm merely saying that from some some of the the, the Ukrainian soldiers I've seen have said that they do the same thing the other way around, and that you know that this is a rough war, and um, that is just the way it is. Colin, before you left Ukraine, you visited a cemetery in Dnipro. Why did you decide to go there and what did you find when you were there? Well, I think we wanted to kind of see what the tail end of this was, really. As I say, we've seen soldiers coming in, dead and dying on the front lines. And just to get an idea of how relatives uh, of those soldiers, the bereaved, are dealing with it and whether their losses impact their opinion at all on what should be the end game for the war, whether they think that further sacrifice is necessary in order to regain every single bit of Ukraine's last territory. In other words, to pre- to press ahead with the counter-offensive, despite the, the, the clear likelihood of there being very further substantial casualties, or whether they perhaps felt that, you know, having lost loved ones, it, a, a, a line could be drawn that perhaps came short, fell short, of Ukraine getting all its territory back. So we went to Dnipro Cemetery, which is the, the Krasnopilsk Cemetery in Dnipro, which is one of the big ones. And every cemetery or in Ukraine now, or certainly most of them in any reasonably large town or, um, uh, or city, and indeed in many villages, has what's known as a hero's alley now, which is effectively a, um, an area set aside for soldiers who've died in the ongoing military campaign. Um, which in Ukrainian eyes, of course, goes back to 2014. But certainly since last year, the the cemeteries have added, you know, have, have expanded greatly. And in Dnipro, for example, I, I think I counted something like about 800 graves, but that was just fresh graves. That was just a sort of rough count. I've heard people say there are as many as 2,000 there. If you multiply that out across Ukraine, you get some idea of the extent of the casualties. And while the Ukrainian government has never publicly stated how many fatalities there have been from the, from the current war, I think it would be reasonable to uh, take a ballpark figure that is at least in excess of 10,000 and, and, and possibly multiples of that. Anyway, while we were there, we, we met a couple of mothers who were at the, um, the graveside of their, their two sons. Um, 
I thought this was perhaps a coincidence that we just happened to turn up when they were there. But it, they, as as they made it clear to me, they they spend a lot of time at the cemetery. They said living in being in Dnipro city itself, where they're both living, it, it doesn't really feel like being at home anymore. You're wandering around amidst people going around their business as normal, and they actually feel happier in the cemetery. They they found a sort of fraternity there of other grieving mothers mainly i think also grieving widows parents it's a very sad and poignant scene really of people who are are beside themselves with grief and who have found in in the cemetery a peer group of people who are going through the same pain so one of the mothers for example was saying that in her son died a year ago in april and there's only been two days when she's not gone up to the cemetery. During that time, she's got to know many of the other mothers, and she's also got to know many of the, the military brigades for the simple reason that, um, that, that they, they are regular visitors to the cemeteries themselves to bury their, their own war dead. Um, and so anyway, we, we asked her, this particular mother and one of her companions, what they felt about whether whether the, the counteroffensive should carry on and how many you know how much how much how much more life should be lost and whether Ukraine should really just try to reclaim its its territory and they said that actually for all their grief and for all their despair they want it to carry on they said otherwise th- that it would feel like a waste of the young lives that have been laid down already and to quote one of them she said i i don't want to think of parts of ukraine still being occupied by those bastards who invaded us so yes despite all the pain despite them saying very clearly look if you've lost a loved one it's 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 like nothing else for all the talk of collective suffering if you're the if you're the person who's lost a son then you're the one who's feeling that you're really feeling the pain despite all that though that they still seem pretty supportive of the narrative that the country should continue fighting well thank you very much Colin for all of your reporting there we'll come back to you for your final thoughts at the end of course can I turn to our guest Andrew Harding Andrew Harding is a British journalist and author. He's been a foreign correspondent for the past 30 years. Since the start of the full-scale invasion, Andrew has travelled to Ukraine as a frontline correspondent for the BBC, reporting from the Donbass and elsewhere in the country. We wanted to speak to him about his most recent book, A Small, Stubborn Town, inspired by his reporting from Ukraine, about a story he heard reported in the early stages of the full-scale invasion. We'd love to talk to you a little bit about your new book, A Small Stubborn Town. Could you tell us about it? Why did you decide to write it and what's it about? It's the story of a very short battle that occurred in southern Ukraine pretty much in the first week of the war. It's a small farming community called Voznesensk. And if you can picture Ukraine and the Black Sea coast and the Crimean Peninsula in the middle of it, where these Russian forces burst out on the 24th of February last year, the ones that burst out of the Crimea were basically trying to get further west along the coastline towards the big key port city of Odessa. And they were making pretty good progress. They took the big city of Kherson on the Dnieper River. Then they got towards the next big city called Mykolaiv, which is on another big river called the Southern Boo. But they got stopped there. And so there were all these paratroopers, all these Russian troops and armoured divisions trying to find a way across the river so they could keep on 
to Odessa. And hopefully the plan was to surround much of Ukraine, as well as, of course, the attacks from the north towards Kiev. And if they could take the southern coastline, they'd have a real vice-like grip on the whole of the country. And the, the war could have gone very differently. But for what happened in tiny little farming town Voznesensk. So Voznesensk is on the, on the southern Boo River. It's got two bridges there. And the Russians set off along the side of the river, hoping that they could get to Voznesensk, cross the river, and then continue on with the journey west towards Odessa. And what happened, in some ways, I don't want to give away what happened because I hope people will buy the book, but there was a key battle over about two, two and a half days in Voznesensk. Initially, it looked like it was just going to be the town's kind of dad's army, if people know what that is. The, the locals, the volunteers, the farmers, the businessmen, the lawyers, who all said, not over our bridge. The Russians are not going to cross this bridge. We'd rather blow it up. We're going to make a stand. And you've got a picture. These Russian troops had been launching this crazy, unexpected offensive and had been actually going through a lot of towns where people just locked their doors and hopes that the war wouldn't affect them. But here was a town that decided to make a stand. And it was only in the last few hours before the Russians arrived with their tanks and their artillery and their helicopters. It was only just at the last minute that some Ukrainian regular army troops turned up and made a key difference. And so I heard about this war because I was in Ukraine at that time and I was covering the front lines around Mykolaiv. And then I heard about what had happened just a few days earlier in Voznesensk. And it was a battle that not many people had heard about. Very few had covered it. Of course, there was this huge chaotic front line right the way up to Kiev and beyond, all the way up to, to the Belarusian border in the north. And what happened in little Voznesensk didn't seem to be very important. But of course, in retrospect, it, it proved to be crucial. It proved perhaps to have helped change the course of the war. And I went up there and immediately started running into these extraordinary characters. Like the first woman I met pretty much was a woman called Svetlana. She was in her late 50s and she just grabbed me by the hand and led me across her vegetable patch in a little village on the outskirts of Voznesensk and started showing me the, the blood basically on her front door which had been turned into a stretcher by the Russians because her village had been very quickly taken over by the advancing Russians and they turned her little cottage that she lives in with her husband and her almost perpetually drunk son, and they work on the local rubbish heap collecting scrap. They turned her cottage into a Russian field hospital, into a Russian command post, and eventually into a, a prison. And she was one of these sort of extraordinary, garrulous people who, who relived everything for me and told me the story of what had happened to her and her family as the Russians tried to push on into Voznesensk itself. And I immediately started thinking, oh my gosh, this woman is a novel on her own. And then I met the mayor, the 32-year-old mayor of Voznesensk. I met lawyers and farmers who'd played an important role as volunteers in the fight. And I started very quickly to think, this is a microcosm of the war itself. And it's also... It's an inspiring story and it captures something which I think we've come to understand more and more over the last year and a half, which is that Ukrainians, this grey republic, this former Soviet republic, which 
I think many people had not realized quite how much it had changed since 2014, quite how dynamic it's become, quite how determined and youthful and impressive it's become. And Vosnesensk and its battle, to me, at a time when the outcome of this war is still so uncertain, but at a time as well when you don't really... Certainly, I don't want as a writer to be focusing just on the gloom and the grim tales of what happened in Butcher and Irpin. I wanted to tell a story that would capture and hopefully inspire and, and get to the heart of what Ukrainians have been so remarkable in, in just rallying and rebuilding and redefining themselves as a nation. A crucial part of this story is the decision to resist. And, and I wanted to ask you a little bit, where, where do you think that comes from? I mean, you mentioned people often are not aware of just how much Ukraine has changed. It's changing constantly. When you were there, where, did they tell you much about that, that sort of that moment when the people decided that this was the plan? They weren't, they weren't going to let this stand. Um, where did you think that comes from? Well, it was very interesting that it wasn't a long debate. The mayor turned up early in the morning at his office. Within minutes, all the rest of his administration, the heads of the local hospitals, schools, the local police. And these are mostly, you've got to remember, very young people now. And it's another sort of impressive sign of Ukraine. It's a new generation. They're very dynamic. And everyone's in IT when you talk, what do they do? And they were inspired, I think, partly by Zelensky, partly by the fact that they were still alive after a, a week of, of this blitzkrieg that no one had expected. And they, when they described the decision, they described it as something almost like a shrug. It was like, well, of course, this is where we make a stand. And the mayor led the way, but there was no, there was no doubt. Although there were deserters, there were rich businessmen. There were people who perhaps could have made more of a difference or more of a contribution. And it's true in any society. I mean, Ukraine is not perfect. There were people who fled. There were soldiers and volunteers who at the last minute thought, I'm not going to commit suicide by by trying to defend this town against this incredibly well-equipped Russian army with all its helicopters and guns. This is madness. This is a this is a battle that that will simply be a a sort of heroic sacrifice. And frankly, it's safer to get in a car and drive further west. And yet, overwhelmingly, the town's businessmen, the farmers, men and women, even school children who were busy making Molotov cocktails, and the, and the teachers and the, the the women of the town in particular who set up field hospitals, who set up a whole system of cooking meals to to su- support the men at the roadblocks, who were bringing in sand from the local quarries so they could start blocking off key roads, reinforcing the the river banks because they were worried that the tanks and the Russian APCs might be able to get over them and get through some of the shallower bits of the river and carry on and trying to funnel the Russian advance into a, a kind of ambush that they began to work out quickly because they thought, well, we must have a few days, maybe we've even got a week to make the plan for the defense of Osnesensk. Did you get the sense that they were almost surprised at what they'd done or or as you said is it more of that attitude of it's just a shrug of course we're going to do this of course of of, of course we're going to fight i think they were surprised by um not just 
that sense of, I mean, almost giddy, not optimistic, but, but you know, it's an inspiring thing to bring a community together like that. And although it, it was already a small town, but it was a small town with the usual frictions. But I think everybody that I spoke to talked about quite what a, what a binding, what a unifying moment it was to feel everybody coming together and no longer bickering, really united in this, this sense of being part of something bigger than they were. But I think they were also surprised very quickly by quite how poor the Russians were at their tasks, how arrogant they were in terms of the way they started driving their columns across the fields, down the roads, straight into the town, assuming there would be no defence. And so, for instance, not doing basic things like putting infantry out around their columns, around the convoy, to make sure that they weren't ambushed. That didn't happen. It did after a bit because they suddenly realised that there was a town here with an army of at least some sort that was going to fight them. But I think the invading Russians really, even though they'd already met quite a lot of stiff resistance, they were still very much of the opinion in that first week that at least somewhere, surely, the Ukrainians are going to throw flowers onto the roads and greet us like the conquering heroes that the Kremlin's propaganda for the past 10 years had convinced them they would. Thank you for liberating us from these wretched Nazis who seized control in Ukraine. And they were, and we got this from people in their trenches who heard Russian troops shouting across the front lines going, why are you shooting at us? We're on the same side. We're your Slavic brothers. Put down your weapons and let's make peace. And of course, that didn't happen. Just a final question from me. We've heard, obviously, quite a few Ukrainian officials say things like, you know, this is not, it's not a film, it's not a TV series. These are not characters. These are real people suffering every single day. So how do you balance your enthusiasm and, uh, as, a, as a writer, as someone who wants to find the stories, with, with, with the fact that, yeah, these are, these are real people who've gone through an extremely traumatic event? How do you find that balance? I spend a lot of time kind of digging into sort of the complexities of the story. And of course, it's not a story of Ukrainians fighting Russians. It's a story of people who may speak Russian, who may have deep nostalgia for the Soviet era, who may feel ambivalent about the Russian offensive. And some of them making choices to kind of, you know, maybe quietly support the Russians, maybe stay in a cellar and hope that once the war is over and the Russians are in control, things will be better. People getting disillusioned uh, with Ukraine and then discovering that they really had swallowed the propaganda and that the scales had fallen from their eyes. We have a, have a long section about the invading Russian army and the fact that there were plenty of Ukrainians in that army who'd sat in Crimea when it was seized in 2014 and decided, well, we'll, we'll stick with the Russians then. Um, and some of my key characters in the book, it turns out that they are Russians, that they have Russian relatives back over the border who are deeply sceptical of what Ukraine is doing. And, you know, you make families getting divided, families trying to come to terms very quickly and very unexpectedly with a war that they really didn't anticipate, despite the fact that it started back in 2014. So there's a lot of nuance in there. And I tried to focus on that as well. And also, you know, to, to recognize that, that these are not 
stereotypes. These are humans. These are ordinary people in the most extraordinary circumstances. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for giving us a sense of what you've written. I know Francis has one uh, quick question for you, and then we'll go to our final thoughts, please. Thanks, David. Yes, Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. I just wanted to ask a question about a recent article you wrote for the BBC where you were talking to frontline troops about the counteroffensive. And I'll quote from that, if I may. You say, having spent the last few weeks visiting three separate sections of the front and talking to a range of people, I'm tempted to divide different perspectives into three broad groups. Those who see Russia's defensive lines as if they're made of tin, those who see them as wood, and those who imagine them as glass. Could you just expand a little bit on that, what they mean and what the the different interpretations of this counteroffensive are amongst the soldiers themselves. Thank you, Francis. Yes, I'm just back from from the Donbass and I spent about a month there. And this was something I was trying to illustrate, if you like, about the the fundamental question everyone's asking. When on earth is this front line going to shift? Surely everyone remembers late last year when suddenly the Ukrainians broke through, they captured Kherson, they broke through in the north. And people are wondering now, it's been a month or more of this very intense uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. Where's it going? And there are doubters. There are people who think it's not going anywhere. There are too many minefields. It's going too slowly. It's never going to break through. The Russians had six months or more to dig in their defenses. And that I started to try and kind of find a way to, to encapsulate that. And I thought of metal or tin, something that would represent a kind of solid barrier that might get dented, it might be pushed back. But fundamentally, that illustrated the idea that the Russians are never really going to be broken. They might just retreat here and there, but they've dug in too well. And the Ukrainians don't have the air power, the air superiority they need to to make the big strategic breakthroughs that everyone's waiting for. Then I thought, well, another opportunity Another option might be something you could see of a splintering here and there, not a complete collapse. So I thought of plastic, then I decided, no, wood, a wooden wall of defense that the Ukrainians may well break through and they may have some tactical successes, perhaps not the big successes. And I was illustrating all this with the, with the varied voices of some very worried Ukrainian troops on the front line, some very tired, frankly, quite gloomy voices of people I'd met. But also then I came to the third option, which was this idea that actually the Ukrainians are doing their homework. We need to be patient. It's only been a month. They're being very successful behind the front lines with their HIMARS and other targeted artillery and rockets in destroying Russia's artillery, its supplies, its command and control lines. And that actually, in this fast-paced modern world, we're forgetting that the D-Day landings took 50 days or whatever to break out from the beaches, that without air power, it was always going to be a slow, painful, difficult business. And also another point which I think is often overlooked, which is that Ukrainians really are prioritizing saving their men. They are not pushing them perhaps as fast as I think their Western backers would like, sacrificing more now, perhaps to save more later. They are desperately trying to keep it as safe as you can on a front line. And that means a certain amount of caution, which is slowing things down. But surely, eventually, and you hear a lot of military planners, a lot of experts saying this, at some point, this front line is going to shatter. 
And so the glass image came there. And of course, lurking behind all of that is the bigger question, which I think a lot of people really focus on, which is what's going to happen in Russia. Was the Prigozhin mutiny a one-off, or is it more likely that this war and the process and the progress made by Ukraine will depend not so much on their success, but on another mutiny, a coup, something shattering politically, which will enable Ukraine to seize back so much territory that things change fundamentally. Thank you very much, Andrew and Francis, for your question there. Can we go to our final thoughts? Colin Freeman, would you like to start? Uh, first of all, just uh, let me say, uh, I uh, point out, I, I reviewed um, Andrew Harding's book for the Telegraph book uh, section um, about a month ago, and I can recommend it. It is a good read. Um, I, I've reviewed a number of books for the Telegraph so far on the Ukraine war. This, I think, is the first one that drills down into a community and the battle that was fought in any detail. Much of the coverage so far, be it in newspapers or books, tends to have been a, a bit kind of on the spot because uh, just because of the pace of events. So, yeah, I would I would certainly commend it. On, on, on other thoughts, I think on, on the issue of casualties, just to return to that a bit and, and to what extent the country has the appetite to carry on fighting through what is likely to be perhaps the hardest period of the war with this counteroffensive against this very potentially very formidable Russian lines of defence. Uh, I think what I said earlier may have given, given the impression that there is unanim, unanimity on this and that we, they, the Ukrainians just want to press on with it. I have spoken to other people, though, including the boss of a, a field hospital, not the one I went to, but to another one who said that he felt that um, in coming months that people, you know, the head of steam may gather in terms of pushing for some sort of negotiated settlement to the war to avoid that many further casualties. He thinks the numbers of casualties are possibly uh, far greater than we, than, than Ukrainians may, may be led to believe, and that when the figure um, that finally emerges, it will be a number, um, to quote him, that will make the country cry out. So uh, I, I think it's one of these things where we wait and see, really. The fact that the, the, the figures are not um, made public does keep the nation guessing a bit. But I, I perhaps wouldn't be surprised to see that, be surprised if, if, the, if the, the counteroffensive really does get badly bogged down with no good, good news headlines and perhaps some bad ones in coming months then that might be the point at which the, the conversation changes on the issue of casualties versus territory. Thanks, Colin. Francis Turnley. For my final thought, I just want to comment on a United Nations report into hunger, one that does have implications for the war in Ukraine, but it's also much broader. So apparently 122 million more people are now facing hunger than in 2019, according to this report, which says that the war in Ukraine and the COVID-19 pandemic had a devastating impact on global food supplies. In total, it says between 691 and 783 million people went hungry in 2022, the UN's largest state of food security and nutrition in the world report ever 
have found. It said that the global food insecurity had worsened in recent years due to a perfect storm of COVID-19, extreme weather events and ongoing conflicts, particularly the war in Ukraine and the impacted blockade on the port of Odessa, exposing the world's dependence on black sea grain and sunflower oil exports. It says that nearly 2.4 billion people, equivalent to 29.6% of the global population, did not have constant access to food in 2022. One in five people faced hunger in Africa, more than twice the global average. The report also warned that achieving the UN's target of zero hunger by 2030 will be a daunting challenge in light of the figures. This is because the recovery from the global pandemic has been uneven and the war in Ukraine has affected food prices and healthy diets. It talks about how Russia and Ukraine, two grain exporting powerhouses, once accounted for 24% of global wheat exports by trade value, 57% of sunflower seed exports and 14% of corn from 2026 to 2022, something that has been hugely disrupted. And it talks about the importance of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which, of course, opened this maritime corridor, which we've discussed at length in the past. And it really draws attention, I think, to the importance of that in their perspective. Of course, Russia continues to be threatening to withdraw from the deal. And I think there are increased concerns that they might really mean it this time. But of course, there are major implications for them if they do so, particularly on their relationships in Africa and also the ties at the diplomatic table that they have with the UN, which they may not want to sacrifice given they perceive negotiations as still being on the table and a means of ending this war. But it's a concerning report, a very, very detailed one. But I wanted to flag it as another example of how this war in Ukraine is having major global ramifications in areas which are not always the easiest to measure, but which impact millions upon millions of people. Can I go to our guest, Andrew Harding, for the very final thoughts? Andrew. Thank you very much. Well, I, I, as I say, I've just come out from the Donbass. I've got a few months off and we'll be back, I think, in October or November. And I just reflecting on that and thinking about what kind of Ukraine I'll be going back to. I mean, it happens every time. This is my I've just finished my fifth tour of duty, if you like, in the east of Ukraine. It feels like it always feels like, but it particularly feels like a very crucial moment, even though I think we all have to be very patient about where this is going. And we talk endlessly about a spring offensive or a summer offensive. In fact, it's all nonsense. We don't know how long this offensive, this counteroffensive of Ukraine's can last, will last. I suspect they plan for probably about three months. So time is is running out. And as Colin was saying there, you know, it's possible that they're going to get bogged down. But it's also possible that something absolutely fundamental could change. And it's hard, even when one's trying to be objective about this, it's hard not to hope that something changes fundamental, fundamentally to, to change the status quo, because Russia has been very good at locking in these kind of frozen conflicts in, a, in Moldova, in, particularly in Georgia. And that's the way Russia likes things. In the West, we're used to wars that end. And I, I just hope that this war does end soon. And that when I go back there in a few months' time, it, it, Ukrainians who are so exhausted now, they are so tired, but they are so still determined that something fundamental has shifted. 
Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.